Well, good morning again. I appreciate Max with the prayer and the reading this morning, and always appreciate Evan as he leads us in singing. Uh, it's uh, always good to be in the house of the Lord, and this morning we have the opportunity not only to praise Him, but to pay attention, I hope, to a very straightforward, blunt message from Jesus. I titled this morning's presentation, Sin and Suffering. And I think if you look at the picture over there, that's, that's supposed to really be a picture of someone that's not in a very happy place. You might look at that and think this person is praising God out in the field in the morning. I mean, I see the, the fog out in the field still, but to know that's intended to convey, I can't take it anymore. Sin and suffering. So do pain and suffering come to people because they are sinners? Sure. Sometimes that's true. I mean, it's very possible that people can engage in behaviors that bring consequences. Uh, if I am uh, driving in a car that is not mine and I'm going 150 miles an hour on some of the side streets here in Nashville, I'm probably going to eventually suffer either by smacking into something or smacking into someone, or eventually, if I survive that journey, I will have some consequences, I would think, legally at some point. So sometimes suffering can occur certainly because of sin. Sometimes sinful behaviors can bring suffering. Uh, immoral behaviors will often bring diseases. They do. And so engaging in immoral behaviors is a very risky proposition and it can bring suffering because of sinful behaviors. But there sure is a lot of suffering. Is it all because of sin? The world seems full of suffering. The world's full of sin. Don't get me wrong there, but is it truly all because of suffering? So what did Jesus say? It's always a good idea to see what Jesus said about anything. As Matt read, there were some present at that very time, Luke 13, 1 and 2, who told him, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? Do you think that, you know, this death while they were going through the sacrifices was because they were the sinners and wasn't true of anyone else? <clears throat> Jesus here mentions an event in another one in verse 4. So what were these events all about? Pardon me for this. Evan had me singing too hard this morning in my throat. My voice is already getting scratched because of it. So what's Jesus talking about historically? Well, first there's a reference to these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled during their sacrifices. Pilate, the governor of Judea, had decided rightly at one point that Jerusalem needed a new and improved water supply. Water for a big city is a big deal. It's a big deal today. Certain places out west are having trouble supplying water for everyone and everything that's needed. So to build this water supply for the city of Jerusalem, Pilate saw a very available pile of money from the temple treasury. So Pilate said, essentially, these are taxes that the Jewish people had paid in. Let's use the taxes these Jewish people had paid into the temple, their offerings, to build a water supply. A very worthwhile goal to provide water for Jerusalem and a more than justifiable expenditure. It wasn't like he was building some 
fancy place that he and a few other people would go to. It would have benefited everybody. But the very idea of Romans taking money from the temple treasury and spending it like that set the Jewish people up in arms. Now we don't know whether this is the actual cause of this particular sacrifice and the murders that occurred while they were sacrificing, but Pilate had a habit of not liking when people got mad about various things. But he also had another habit of not worrying whether he made people mad about things either. So that led to a lot of entanglements, a lot of situations where people suffered. So with these Jews up in arms, uh, the, the mobs gathered and Pilate instructed his soldiers to mingle with them. They weren't wearing uniforms. So as they're mingling along with them, right, they, they kind of look more or less like normal people. Some of them probably had dressed as Roman legionaries, but not all of them, not at all. And they were wearing cloaks over this battle guard that they had. So a lot of people out there all wearing cloaks and, and clothing of the time they would not have stuck out like any kind of sore thumbs. And they were instructed, however, to carry these short, thick clubs. You know, like a, a, the only thing I think of is sometimes the police would have had those in the past, right? A club to, to do that and smack on people instead of pouring out a gun or something like that. Well, they didn't have guns, they had just gloves. They were supposed to carry those around instead of swords. At the given signal, they were supposed to, you know, expose themselves here, pull out their gloves, and beat the crowds and get them all out. Disperse the crowd. Crowd dispersement technique in the first century. This was done. The signal was given, but the soldiers, the armed soldiers, met the mob with violence far beyond what they were, in fact, ordered to do. And a large number of people lost their lives because of what the soldiers did that day. This may very well have been the first incident. People gathered at the temple, the soldiers mingling out in the outer courts of the temple, and then trying to disperse the crowds who were rightly upset that Pilate is taking temple money for a Roman project, even though it's going to provide water for the whole city. And the soldiers get very, very carried away. That might have been that first incident. Regardless, the specifics we're told here is that Pilate had killed some Galileans and their blood was actually at the same location as they were making sacrifices to God. Or, Jesus continues on in verse 4 for the second example, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse? than offenders and all the others who lived in Jerusalem. This is the second event. The King James translates that word underlined offenders as sinners, but offenders or debtors is actually a better translation of the word. Were they worse offenders? Well, what are we talking about here? It's actually potentially put forward that these individuals may have been working on a product, uh, a project where Pilate was building those aqueducts, those water transport systems. So what's the problem? Why would they have been viewed as offenders? Offenders. To the Jewish mindset of that time, if you were helping the Romans, then you were not a very good Jew. You were helping the enemy. You were cooperating with the enemy. And so these people, if this is what was happening at the time, were working on a tower. Maybe there was a... a uh, an aqueduct going by the tower being secured next to the tower and the tower falls. Maybe they didn't do the 
work very well, killed 18 people. If they were actually doing that job for the Romans, the people may very well have said, well, they got what they deserved. You ever said that before? You ever thought that before? You ever seen something on the news and had that thought flash through your minds? This is not a first century mindset. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. Sometimes people suffer, people hurt or die. And not only do we assume that they were involved in something bad or that they were offenders or that they were sinners, to put it in a religious perspective, we also tend to assume that it was just. This is what happens when you do X, Y, or Z. So when you look, if there had been any money earned, it was due to God and had been voluntarily handed over to the temple treasury, how on earth could you take that money and pay people to work for the enemy? And so perhaps they died because of the work they had agreed to do, which would have been, in the minds of most, contrary to what God wanted, contrary to what God wanted. So Galileans dying as they sacrificed and workers upon whom a tower fell. The statement made to Jesus seems to very much carry the idea that they were sinners. They died because they were sinners. We do, as I said before, the same exact thing. And uh, sinners and suffering were directly connected in the Jewish way of thinking back in the first century. Eliphaz, back in the book of Job, we don't go to the book of Job very often, he said, remember who that was innocent ever perished? Do you think of someone who was innocent that ever died? Or the upright ever cut off? The people that die, this friend, put that in quote marks, this friend of Job is suggesting, were always the bad people. It's always those involved in doing things they shouldn't do who suffer. Why is he telling Job this? Because at that very moment, Job is suffering a lot. He's had his entire family wiped out. He's had all of his possessions taken away. And his physical body is suffering with all sorts of sores and boils. His friends come over and say, all right, tell us what you've been up to. Obviously, you're a sinner, big time. Come on, confess. It's good for the soul. And by the way, whatever's happening to you, you deserve it. With friends like that, so he says, after all, right, when he's making the case to Job, you have to have been a sinner. Who was the innocent who ever perished? Was the upright person ever cut down by God? No, is the implied answer to that. So obviously you're a sinner because you're suffering. Even the Jewish word for leper or for leprosy, the Jewish word for leprosy is the same word used to be struck by God. There are times in the Bible where God strikes people. Think of Uriah. I'm sorry. Think of the individual whose name is escaping me at the moment. Boy, we're talking about the senior moment. The individual who reaches out and holds on to the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody can feel free to call that out and save me from this embarrassment. Uzzah, it was close. It wasn't you. And it ended up, uh. I should have just said, uh. Uzzah. <laughs> Who reaches out to steady, you can tell me when you extempore, you talk off track, right? You bring up an example you haven't thought through. Uzzah, 
who is steady in the Ark of the Covenant, God strikes him dead. The word used right there to strike us a dead is the word used throughout the rest of the Old Testament when people have leprosy. They were assumed to have been struck by God. Why would God strike somebody? God strikes sinners. Uzzah reached out, he was not supposed to, God strikes him. You do something that you're not supposed to, it's sinful, it's bad enough, it's kind of the implication. God's going to strike you. You have leprosy, that is proof that you're a sinner. So not only were the lepers in the Old Testament times and even into the New Testament times shunned because they were supposed to keep away from other people, they were assumed to be sinners as well. God's not going to strike a righteous person and give them leprosy. Sin and suffering were, as we would say, joined at the hip. One led to the other all the time. That's the mindset people have when they come to Jesus. And as I've said a moment ago, that's the mindset we often have. We often have the same exact mindset. And it's a wrong mindset. There are times people suffer when it's not related to sin at all. Not at all. So what does Jesus say about this? Jesus says, no. Flat out, were these people worse sinners than anybody else in, in, among the Galileans? Were these workers on the Tower of Siloam sinners? Did they get what was justified? Did they get what they deserved? No. He says, no. I tell you, he says, no. I tell you, unless you repent, you're also going to perish. So he's not denying at all that these individuals perished. The Galileans whose blood was mingled with the sacrifices, these workers where the tower fell on them and crushed them all, he says, were they worse offenders than everybody else in Jerusalem? No, but you better watch out yourself because you might like to perish too. What's he talking about there? Well, keep in mind he's speaking to a group of people who are very nationalistic. There's no difference in their minds between being a follower of God and being part of the nation of Israel. One and the same. And so to be for Israel was considered to be for God. Right? They were focused on kicking out the Romans. That's where you got the individuals who were the killers of Romans. They were those who were trying to kick out the Romans by murdering all of them themselves. They, by the fact of being Romans, were those who could be killed at will in the service of God. It was a holy war to kick out the Romans, even if it required murder. Jesus said, unless those individuals repent, they too will perish. History tells us people who were identifying Israel with God's people People who were identifying the nation of Israel as God's people did in fact perish because they eventually revolted against Rome in AD 67 and Rome finally said enough. Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed in AD 7. Jesus gave them a warning some 40 or so years before. If you're thinking that just because you're a member of the nation of Israel then you're one of God's people, and you're taking actions that are kind of poking the Roman bear, better watch out because you are going to perish just like these other people did. That's one side of Jesus' statement. 
Sometimes, as, as you might know, we get caught up in a group or a nation or a gathering of people who are not, in fact, seeking God. There are a lot of uh, nations on the face of the earth today that don't have God anywhere in their sights. And in fact, some nations say they have God in their sights, and they sure don't seem to. That's a path that can often lead to destruction for the nation and the individual. Jesus says, I tell you, notice he doesn't speak to the nation, he's talking to the individual. I tell you, unless you change, you're going to suffer. You're also going to perish. And sometimes we do suffer because of things we ourselves do or sometimes we suffer because of the choices of others. And the example I was using earlier, somebody driving 150 miles an hour through a side street may very well hit me crossing the street. Does that make me a sinner? No. It means free will and choices people make sometimes cause problems in the world. So sin will generate suffering. Most of the time, sin eventually generates suffering. But sometimes suffering happens and it's not related to sin at all. Not related to sin at all. Somebody's diagnosed with cancer, but it make them sin. It means they're living in a world where things don't work the way God originally intended. The sin is in the world, and the world's a fallen place. The world is a fallen place. The important point Jesus makes, and one I really, really want to make sure we all leave with today, is that to avoid perishing, we need to repent. Are these people worse sinners than anybody else in town? Jesus said, no. And I tell you, unless you repent, you're going to perish in a similar way. It may not be a tower falling on our heads, but we're going to perish nonetheless. What does that mean? Jesus is not focused on the nation of Israel. He's focused on the people right in front of him. That's what we should be focused on. The nation is a pretty big place. A lot of people in the nation. A lot of things happening in the nation. I'm not careful. I'll have my eyesight on this bigger picture we sometimes hear about. And I won't see the people right in front of me who need my help, who can help me. We need to focus on getting our lives right with God, getting our lives back in the direction they need to be, one at a time, one at a time. So what does repenting mean? As we said in class this morning, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. My mind needs to change and say, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to live the way God wants me to live. Which means what? Love God. If I love God, I'm going to be focused on being more God-like. More Godly in my thoughts and actions. I have to love God and love my neighbor. That means having a heart that's moved to Passion, even if somebody has brought this on, the one word, they brought this on themselves. You know, if you see somebody in need and I don't reach out to help because I'm assuming they brought it on themselves, there's no real difference between that kind of reaction 
the priest and the Levite walking by on the other side. There's no indication that the man on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho brought anything on himself, but the Samaritan is the one who simply went over to help. Simply went over to help. So, what does it mean this morning? It means that to get back on track, to get back into the relationship with God that you need to have, you may need to come for prayer. That's relative, fairly easy. It's just us here this morning and God. It may mean that you need to say, my life has been a mess. I need the prayers and encouragement of my brothers and sisters here at Linsley Avenue, and I need help with my life getting it in the direction God wants it to be. Or, if you're not yet a member of God's family, if you have not said, I understand what Jesus did, that he lived a life that was perfect, I understand that I am a sinner, that I have made choices that I wanted to do, that God had said no, and that Jesus paid the price for those wrong things I had done. And Jesus has said that I need to change, and Jesus has said that I need to be immersed so that that old me can die under the waters of baptism, and I can be raised to walk as a completely new person. That's the change that we may need to make today. So what change do you need to make this morning? Things I want you to consider as we stand and see.